Thank you, Dan and choir, for beautiful worship. I didn't want that song to end. Turn to Psalm 133. This is a song that ancient Israel was singing as she was marching up to Zion to worship, going to festival time. This is one of the songs in the Psalter, a psalm they sang as they were going to worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words six years before his imprisonment by the Gestapo. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Even at age 16, Bonhoeffer knew he wanted to study theology. He had the opportunity to study among the great theological minds of Germany like Karl Barth. In 1939, he was in the United States for a while, and people urged him to stay here, don't go back. He already had strife with the Nazi regime and with Hitler, and they said, you could, God can use you right here in America. Do not go back to Germany. But he returned because of his love for the German church. He was arrested in 1943. Then on Sunday, April the 8th, 1945, he was preaching a sermon in prison to fellow prisoners when the door opened before he said his last amen, and it came, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That could only have one meaning, the gallows. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. You are familiar with his cost of discipleship, meaningful words coming from a man who gave his life for his love for God and God's people. But yet there's another smaller book, my favorite book of Bonhoeffer, entitled Life Together. It's about dwelling together as the church, as the people of God in unity. The opening words of that brief book by Bonhoeffer are these words, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. He opens, I think, his greatest work with these words from the Psalter. Indeed, Bonhoeffer was willing to give his life to leave the safety of America, to go back to be with a church in Germany. And when Christ called Bonhoeffer, he did call him to come and die. Behold how good it is for the brothers of Christ, of God, to dwell together in unity. Perhaps you've heard someone say, I love God, but I hate the church. What they're saying is, I acknowledge the father of this family, but I will not acknowledge my siblings, my brothers, and my sisters. The reality is, you cannot call God Father without also calling me brother. You see, it is one and the same. If you are to have a relationship with God, then you must also have a relationship with his people. That's what we see this morning in this Psalm 133. 
You automatically, as a child of God, must relate to God's people, the church. God doesn't have any only children, not a single one. He has no only sons and no only daughters. He never makes private, secret salvation. It is always a community act to be part of a family. Is our relationship with God personal? Yes. Is it intimate? You bet. Is it private? Not at all. Our relationship with God is always lived out in the relationship with God's family. We are called, as we are called by Christ to be his disciple, to also be a part of his body, to be part of his family. As Eugene Peterson has said, the question on the table is never, am I going to be a part of church? Am I going to follow Christ as part of the community? The only question on the table is, how am I going to live out my faith within the body of Christ in my service to this, his community? Oh, there are some children who run away for a while, act like they're not part of the body, They pretend they don't have brothers and sisters in Christ. They get an apartment, and we don't see them for a long time. And then maybe they'll come back and check in on a holiday and and bring a gift to show somehow deep down they still know there's a calling of God on their life, and thus there's a calling of God's people on his or her life. Scripture knows nothing of solitary Christianity. Scripture knows nothing of solitary Christianity. People of faith are always part of a faith community. When in the early church, some Christians began to go get those apartments and drop out of church, a pastor in Hebrews writes these words, Do not neglect meeting together like some of you are doing. But encourage one another all the more since you know Christ is returning. Don't neglect the gathering together as is the practice of some, one translation says. The Bible knows nothing of any religion that is based upon what a person does privately in a relationship with God based upon their own spiritual development or a retreat or solitude away from the people and the place of God. Psalm 133 is one of those dog-eared psalms in the Psalter, the songbook. They would have folded it down many times. They, of course, knew it by memory and didn't need a book. It is brief, and it is powerful. And as they were marching to Zion, as they were ascending up to the temple, as they were going to worship, they would sing these words, How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We are called in community. We are called into Christ. We are called into church. The call is not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross, you struggle, you pray, but you are not alone. Bonhoeffer writes, 
You are not alone, not even in death. On that last day, you will only be one member of a great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. How good it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, to sing as they are marching to Jerusalem. How pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. It reminds me of Romans 15, which one of our courses seems as if it's borrowed some words from this text. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind and one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. In one accord, with one voice, Glorifying God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all that sounds good, but it's hard for the brethren to dwell together in unity, isn't it? In fact, the Bible, someone might describe as a book of broken families. That's a collection of stories of, of broken families. Brothers do by nature fight. I have a brother. He was older and bigger, but I was meaner, and so it worked out. But brothers, by nature, fight. Sisters squabble, don't they? In fact, I think about the very first brokenness in Scripture outside of the great fall, and that is the story of Cain and Abel, the first story of sibling rivalry. The very first siblings were competitive and cutthroat and jaundiced and jealous. Here's a story for you. One brother murders another. And then there's a story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. Strutting around daddy's favorite, making his brothers jealous and, well, their sibling rivalry, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt, strip him of that colorful coat, and stain it with goat's blood. Then there's a story of girls, too. Rachel and Leah, has there any been more any more jealousy than those two gals fighting over who would bear all of Jacob's children? And then there's David and his brothers. The older boys, tall and handsome, not chosen. The youngest one chosen. And then David goes to check on his brothers and comes back tattling to their father about how things are at war, always checking on his brothers in the flock and tattling as well. And then there's Jesus and his brothers. Are you even familiar with those stories? There's one occasion in Mark's gospel that the mother and brothers of Jesus arrive to take him away because they think he is mad. Lunatic is the word used there. Or then there's that story in John's gospel when the brothers of Jesus try to entice him, making fun of his messiahship, entice him to go up to the temple area and to pull off a magic trick or two so that he might be, I think they want him arrested. 
So there's tension there. Now, happy to say after his resurrection, his brothers became believers. But early on, there's that tension even between Jesus and his brothers. Sometimes living together like brothers means actually squabbling and angry arguments and fights. Therefore, the psalmist says, living together, how good it is when brothers and sisters in Christ live together in unity. Not always agreeing necessarily, but living in unity. With one voice of praise, rising to heaven and praising God. I am so thankful for the unity we have in this church, and it's not always true. You know it's not always true, and it is something for us to cherish and relish, and we celebrate that today. But I can tell you, in speaking to so many of my pastor's friends, that I have a jewel in the unity amongst this body. That doesn't mean everybody thinks like I think. If everybody in this church had to believe everything just like how he believes to be a member, we'd have one member of this church, and that would be me. I I understand that. Even the staff members couldn't be members if that were the case. I'm not trying to make you think everything like I think. That would be a disappointment. We need to challenge each each other, and and iron sharpens iron, and we need to discuss and debate and contemplate together. But I am so thankful that even though we're not exactly the same, that there is this spirit of unity that pervades this people called First Baptist Church. And we are so very different, aren't we? This morning on our property, we have people gathering and preaching the gospel in five different languages, five different cultures, even more cultures than that, but five different languages gathered together, and the cultures are so different and have so many different core values. But the one thing we have in common in all these cultures and in all these languages is everybody says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is is Lord. Politically this morning, perhaps we would be different. Socioeconomically, certainly we are different. We are different generationally. We have old and we have young. We have members who are over a hundred years of age, and we have some that were born this week. So many differences. Different styles of music, and we try to sing them all, but we all have our favorite, and and so many different cultures coming, and really even within this room, there are so many different kinds of people, and yet we are a gathered people under the gospel. God's people are to be a gathered people, are they not? Zechariah 10, 8 says, I will gather them, for I have redeemed them. Jesus died that he should gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad, John eleven fifty two, Or at the very last, if you don't like gathering with God's people, you're going to be awfully disappointed in heaven. Matthew 24, the angels of God shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. By definition, in the very beginning of following Jesus, we are a gathered people at the end of the story. Likewise, there are no solitary followers or worshipers of God. We are in the end forever eternity a gathered people who sing praises to his name. 
Those gathered together don't come from one nation, one tribe, one language, or one culture. They come from the four corners of the earth. And the one thing in common is each one of them has said, with the confession of the lips and the bowing of the knee, that Jesus is Lord. We gather together every week and we come to worship. It is an anticipation of the way that will be in heaven, in heaven's choir when we sing together with the divine beings. This fellowship here is but a shadow of the ultimate eternity and the fellowship of God's people together from so many differences. How good it is when God's sons dwell in unity. We live in a world with fences and walls when unity is seldom seen and the fences go higher, even in our own neighborhoods. Have you noticed? It used to be a 36-inch fence, and now if you don't put up a 10-footer, you're nothing, right? We build the walls higher and higher and higher. James Gallagher and Ronald Vope were childhood friends. They, they dreamed of being together all their lives. They, they bought houses side by side. Gallagher planted a hedge on his side of the property, but in 1992, Volk trimmed that hedge without Gallagher's permission. An argument ensued, and they never spoke again. Two more years went by. Volk once again took the shears to his neighbor's shrubs to lower the fence. This time, Gallagher loaded the pistol murdered his lifelong friend over the hedge, 40 years in prison. How good it is when no hedge is needed. We live sometimes today separated from God and separated from each other, and the scandal is not the brokenness of the world. We expect the world to be broken I'm not surprised when country can't agree with country. That's no surprise. The scandal is when there is a brokenness in the church and there's a, a constant expanding number of denominations and independent congregations. And what's worse still is within even congregations, there is so much brokenness. I want you to notice two things this morning from this song. First of all, I want you to look at verse 2. For brothers to dwell in unity, it is like the precious oil upon the beard coming down upon the, beard, the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. First of all, I want you to notice that to dwell together in unity is like the anointing of the oil upon the head. This, this image comes from Exodus 29 when after the sacrifices have been prepared that Aaron puts on his priestly garment and then we read in Exodus 29, 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him and thus you shall uh, ordain Aaron and his sons. The sacrifices made, the garments adorned, the oil comes down Aaron's head and down to his beard, down his robes, down his body. All is a symbol in Scripture of God's presence of the Spirit, presence of the Spirit of unity of God. 
It's what makes a person a priest to be anointed. Living together means seeing all flowing down on each other's heads, face down through the beard on the shoulders. We see each other this morning as a priesthood of believers. We see each other as God's anointed to one another. And by our relationship with the room of priests, we are profoundly changed. Not what we are in ourselves. Not what you are in yourself or I am in myself, but what we are as a brotherhood or a sisterhood, a family that makes us that way. To each other, we are the bearer of the Spirit and the Word of God. How good it is, he's saying, when God's brotherhood dwells in unity because we are priests to each other. Anointing all of Aaron, the pouring out of the presence of the Spirit of God, the presence of the Spirit of unity. There's a second thing I want you to see in verse 3. It's a second image. It's the dew of Hermon. It's, it's coming down upon the mountains of Zion. The Lord commanded the blessing to life forever. Hermon's the highest mountain in that part of the world, 9,000 feet above sea level. Dew is heavy in the morning. You are drenched in the morning when you sleep there. There's a feeling of, of freshness and vibrancy. We enjoyed the rain last night, and we come in good moods, and we know there is life and forgiveness. There is relief to our land. Part of what it means to be in the body of Christ is to have rising expectations of each other. We must refuse, absolutely refuse to label one another as one thing or another and say, well, I know him and this is what he will do. Or I know her, I can guarantee you right now this will be her response. But rather to expect each other and dwell by the Spirit of God as we yield our own selves to his self, that we are a changed people that live out the life of the fruit of the Spirit and gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control. To not put each other in a box and say, he will always be this way or she will always be that way, but say, given the Spirit of God dwelling in her, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in her life as he unfolds. Even when we sin, it's a misunderstanding burden the communal life it's isn't even the sinning brother still a brother or the sinning sister still a sister will not his sin or her sin give us constant reason to give thanks to God that she has been forgiven or he has been forgiven and we too likewise have been forgiven reminds us that but for the grace of God there I am and yet even as we make decisions in our individual lives, we must realize in all honesty that every decision I make and every decision that you make has an impact upon this body of Christ called First Baptist Church. There was a gentleman thinking about joining our, our fellowship, and after he joined, I, I, I thanked him for coming to be part of this 
this unified family called First Baptist Church. And his, his words were unusual, but they were powerful. He says, I hope I never fall into anything that will bring reproach upon this people of God. Wow. He gets it. Scientists talk about the butterfly effect. That is to say that a butterfly flapping his wings in China may one day change the weather in Texas, that we're all connected in every movement and every motion and every thought is connected together in such a way that no one is in isolation. It's certainly true in God's church. How good it is. When we all realize every brother or sister is a partaker of the grace of God, that we're all beggars invited to the Messianic banquet. It was June 1990. The Boston Globe gave an account of an unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. They looked through all the menu selections, and they had really good taste and various china collections that could be rented and used in tablecloths. And this is 1990, and even back then, it was a modest wedding, but the, the price of the reception was going to be $13,000. But on the day that the invitations hit the mailbox, the groom got cold feet, and he said, This is a big decision. Why aren't we jumping the gun? We need to think about this, don't we? Well, his fiancée had had enough, and she was angered, and she returned to the Hyatt. She was going to cancel the $13,000 banquet, and when she got there, the manager couldn't have been more understanding. Honey, this happened to me. I know exactly what you're feeling, rejection. It happened to me, but I've got some bad news. You signed the contract, and you can get back. You pay, they put half down. You put $6,500 down, you can get back $1,300, or you can go ahead and pay the other half and have your banquet, but there is no in-between. We've canceled other wedding opportunities to hold this place and this staff for you, so you get back $1,300, or are you going to have to go on with the banquet? I'm sorry. It seemed like a crazy idea, but, but it sort of lifted her spirits just a little bit. She says she's going to go on with the party. Well, it wasn't going to be a, a wedding reception, but rather it was just going to be a big band blowout, a, a big party. And the woman herself had lived in a homeless shelter, and she'd gotten a job, and she'd been reformed, and she'd built up a little nest egg. And so she canceled the invitations to everybody invited to the wedding, and she sent out the invitations to the houses of refuge to the shelters, to the homeless places, to the down and outs in Boston that night. So it was on that June night in 1990 in the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, a party was hosted as had never been seen before. The hostess exchanged the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom who had backed out of the wedding. The rescue missions came. The shelters came. It was a warm summer night, and people who were used to climbing in dumpsters and pulling off half-gnawed cold pizza were now sitting down in the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston, and waiters with tuxedos came, and hors d'oeuvres were served, and they were sipping the wine, and they were having the dance to the big band swing. Bag ladies and vagrants and addicts, they took one night off from the 
hard life in downtown Boston. And that night they sipped the champagne and they ate the chocolate wedding cake and they danced to the big melodies of the night. So it is with the grace of God. It's a banquet. We're the ones without a home, without a family. And God says, come on. Come on. Pull up a chair. Have a place at my table. But concerning brotherly love, I feel like Paul in Thessalonians. I feel exactly like Paul. You don't have any need that I write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. But I urge you, brothers, to increase even more. Let us pray. God, thank you for this unified family of faith. There's not unanimity, but there is unity. And that unity is around the one fact that whatever else we might disagree about, we all say that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that something happened when he died that satisfied the wrath of God, that his death substituted as our death, and in his empty tomb, the bodily resurrection, our eternal life is made secure. On those things, we are absolute. Father, maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to come and be a part of a, a church family. Maybe she's been trying to do it on her own and realizes that God doesn't have any only children. Maybe there's a family that should come and be a part of this church family. Or, or God, maybe there's someone who says, I don't have any family at all. I'll take that banquet invitation. I want a chair at the Messiah's table. I, too, want my voice to join all these voices in saying, Jesus is Lord. And in his name we pray.